This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. Last week, we delved into the thrilling and extraordinary world of pianist, composer, arranger, and scientist Dan Tepfer. An American born in Paris to a scientist father and mother who was an opera singer, he trained in astrophysics and music. Ultimately, he became a successful jazz musician, working with some of the great jazz legends of all time, such as the late, great Lee Konitz. But Dan Teffer has traversed the combination of science and music. He developed algorithms in music to achieve a new spiritual narrative resulting in his Natural Machines project, for which he has been featured on NPR. His latest recording, Inventions, Reinventions, Keep storytelling as the heart of the matter. In 2011, his recording of the Goldberg Variations of J.S. Bach, which he titled Variations, contained the work of the composer, followed by an additional improvised variation by Dan Tepfer afterwards. His musical narrative is as powerful as the way he envisions the universe, the relationship of all the planets, and the relationship of harmonic key structures. It's fascinating stuff. And he is with me again in part two of our conversation that was riveting in the directions that his mind works. Time and space takes on a new meaning with Dan Tepfer. You know, listening to your playing, you mentioned about being an architect yourself, and that was one of my questions today. You definitely have an architectural kind of idea. But yet, when you get into your improvisations, how far do you allow yourself to go, Dan? I mean, as a great jazz pianist. That's a great question. I think um, improvisation really asks that question very strongly, that question of where do you allow yourself to go in that tension between freedom and constraint? Right, right. Uh, so, you know, for example, if you, if you look at the history of jazz, the traditional way of improvising or the, the way that, that most jazz is made is that you'll take a jazz standard something like All the Things You Are or Autumn Leaves, and you'll play the melody with its uh, accompanying harmony. And then you'll kind of do away with the melody and you'll invent new ideas over the harmonic structure of the, of the jazz standard. And so this, this harmonic structure serves as quite a strict frame for your improvisation. And that's actually extremely similar to what Bach is doing in the Goldberg Variations, where he states at the beginning the aria with its accompanying harmonies, and then does 30 variations that are only using the aria's harmony and not its theme as its frame. So it's actually very similar, and that's why I did my project Goldberg Variations Variations, because I said, well, why not do my own improvisations over the same frame that Bach mm -hmm. is using? So that is an example of constraint, right? And then comes along free jazz. So, you know, people like Ornette Coleman, who decided what, who, who asked themselves, what happens if we do away with this constraint? And if we just kind of go from nothing, right? And of course, Ornette Coleman was a genius and I, I love his music. And also his music wasn't entirely unconstrained in the sense that uh, he did write compositions. And so his groups would know that they start and end with his composition, even if in the middle they, they played quite freely. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was often a rhythmic constraint around it all. So there are still constraints there, but there, there are fewer constraints than when you're playing over a jazz standard. And then, you know, you have people like Keith Jarrett, who, who used to do extended free improvisation concerts where you really start from nothing. 
And this notion of that balance between constraint and freedom it has always been completely fascinating to me, especially because it, it reflects the central questions of our lives, you know, that tension between going down the middle of the road and exploring untrodden paths, uh, you know, and these central questions about society where we develop these laws and, you know, the, the whole birth of religious systems is actually just a way of keeping societies from falling apart by imposing rules on them, right? And so, and then you have these people within these religious groups or within later, you know, systems of laws in society who are constantly pushing at the borders and then you have systems that keep them back in. So, so this notion of freedom and constraint is just central to everything about uh, our lives. And improvisation in jazz in particular, I think is an incredible way to explore that. Mm -hmm. So I explore that in the Goldberg Variations um, by just using the same constraint as Bach. But then I come to the inventions, which I've loved to play since I was a kid. I think they're just these marvelously um, simple or deceptively simple creations. And I ask myself, what is the constraint here? The constraint of the Goldberg Variations is actually pretty obvious, but the constraint in the, in the inventions is much less obvious. And in fact, you really have to start thinking about storytelling to understand what the constraint is. You have to think about rhetoric and storytelling. And, and the way that I see it is that the inventions are really translations in music of what we would now refer to as classical three-act narrative structure. And this is the structure that underpins the ancient Greek tragedies, but also like 99% of Hollywood movies. <laughs> so when I decided to improvise my own inventions for the missing keys, for the nine, for the nine keys that Bach did not write inventions for, right. I asked myself, can I improvise within this very abstract idea of react narrative structure? And um, it was actually very, very difficult for me, much more difficult than when I'm doing the Goldberg Variations, where I'm doing essentially what I've trained my whole life to do within jazz, which is play within a given harmonic structure. In this case, I have to be improvising the harmonic structure itself, but I need it to be believable. I can't just be, I don't want to be just following my nose. Uh, you know, Bach moves around a very um, hierarchically structured harmonic landscape in, in the stories that he tells in the inventions. And so I wanted to be able to uh, myself move around an organized harmonic landscape, but do it freely. So anyway, this is a very long answer to this question about constraint and freedom in improvisation. And, you know, I don't have any answers there, but it's, it's such a fertile uh, area to explore. And I, I just think I'll never tire of, of exploring it. I have a feeling not. Um, could you go on all night, though, for those who are really jazzed by where you're taking us with your music? Could I go all night making music or talking yeah. about it? Yeah, probably both. I mean, yes, the, the answer is yes. <laughs> There's so much to say and, and, and the possibilities are limitless. I mean, I, I'm sure I would get tired at some point, but um, yeah, but I've been, known, I've, been known to, I've been known to stay up all night. Uh, I still do that, even at my not, not insanely young age now. I, I still get really obsessed with like a programming idea or a, or, or a musical idea, and I, I'll, I'll usually stay up all night. I would imagine you have that kind <laughs> of, of tenaciousness, let's put it that way, with that excitement. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, it's prob I'm probably, you know, I've never been diagnosed, but I'm sure I'd probably be diagnosed as ADD or something because I'm either extremely distractible or extremely um, in the flow of, of, of one thing. There you go. That keeps that focus, you know, that keeps, right, us, right. keeps us spinning. Right. Um, you, you're renowned for working with some big legends in the jazz world. I mean, for someone in your young years, really, you've been associated with some phenomenal people. Is this something that you nurtured, Dan, 
and you feel you were lucky that you had this experience with him. And what did you learn from some of the greats that you've worked with? Mm. Uh, well, first of all, yes, I feel extremely fortunate. I mean, really deeply, deeply privileged uh, to have had this this 12-year close artistic relationship with Lee Konitz, uh, who is you know, widely considered to be one of the great improvisers in the history of jazz and who died uh, at the beginning of COVID at the age of, of 92. And the thing about Lee is that he was one of the last remaining representatives of this generation that invented bebop. Uh, Lee was born in 1927, so I feel incredibly lucky. Uh, to answer your question, it's not something I directly sought out, no. Um, when I moved to New York, I listened to a record by Martial Solal and Lee Konitz. Martial Solal is one of the greatest French jazz pianists, and I was born in Paris. I grew up there. Martial Solal was very present for me uh, growing up as a teenager, and I got to know him. And I listened to this record called Star Eyes, and I just had this kind of sudden intuition, which actually has basically never happened to me at any other time. But I was just struck with this conviction that I could do this, that I yeah. could play with Lee Konitz and that I would really love to do that, that it would feel very natural. And so I wrote to Marshall and asked him, would you, would you consider introducing me to Lee? And, and he said, absolutely. And he gave me his number, you know, call him on my behalf. And I called up, called, called Lee up and Lee said, hey, come on over. And so literally like within a day, I was playing with Lee Konitz and we absolutely hit it off right away. I mean, really in a kind of uncanny way. Um, I think musically we hit it off and also on a personal basis, we, we hit it off even though he was 55 years my senior. And when I think about this, I mean, first of all, I think there's just circumstance here. I mean, coincidence of, of that we happen to be on the same wavelength in many ways. But I think also there's something to be said there for my growing up as an only child in a family that, as I mentioned earlier, always welcomed me at the table, uh, which is to say that I've always been very comfortable with people who are much older than me. And um, I think Lee felt that. Lee also uh, had the good idea of surrounding himself with, with younger people uh, for a lot of his later life. I think he just loved that stimulation from younger people. So it, so it went both ways. Yeah, that, that's incredibly formative in my life. Uh, to answer the, the other part of your question, which was, um, what did I learn from this? I think I learned a ton from Lee. Uh, maybe the biggest thing is the seriousness of his commitment to improvisation. And what this means is that Lee was never pretending to improvise. You know, if he got up on stage and said, I'm improvising, which is what he was always doing if he was on stage, he was really improvising. And I know this because I played literally the same like eight to 10 tunes with him hundreds of times on stage because he actually, this is a significant difference between, between him and me, he did not require for his frame to change. He loved working within the same constraint. He loved getting to know a constraint extremely well and then just pushing at the walls of that constraint in a, in a very careful and respectful way. Um, well, I shouldn't say respectful because he's, like, he, he's not exactly a respectful person. He was never a nice guy, you know, but in a, in a way that, that, that absolutely honors the frame. Uh, so I played, you know, these same eight to ten tunes with him literally hundreds of times on the road and it was just fresh every time. And that was, that was the depth of his commitment is if I'm up here making music up, if I'm improvising, then I'm really going to improvise and I'm going to dig deep within myself to find the meaning of the moment. Uh, one, of my, one of the favorite things that, that Lee would say to me, one of my favorite things that he would say, if I said something that that had meaning to him that was not just kind of filling space with meaningless words or unimportant words. He would say, you ain't just beating your gums up and down. 
And that's kind of profound because I think mm -hmm. in music in general, and especially in jazz where we're just making it up as we go along, there is so much temptation to just kind of move your fingers around and just fill empty space with notes because you're afraid of what it feels like to not be playing or because you're concerned that you're not being impressive enough. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. You know, we get a lot of show off jazz musicians who are just like playing a million notes uh, and it just feels like they're just kind of trying to impress you, which if you're having a conversation with someone is never enjoyable. It's never enjoyable to feel like somebody's just saying stuff to impress you. It just, just sounds really irritating actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so Lee was an absolute master at taking away everything that wasn't important, everything that wasn't essential, and just saying what was meaningful. That was so important to him. And that's really the biggest thing that I uh, took away from my relationship with him. That's fantastic. Wow. The late, great Lee Koenig. That, that's fantastic. for what turns you on right now? <laughs> what turns me on right now? Um, I love to kite surf. I've been really getting into kite surfing. <laughs> I could take the subway from my place in, in Brooklyn. I just love right. this because kite surfing sometimes is portrayed as a kind of a, a fancy sport, but I can take the, I can literally take all my gear on the subway to Coney Island and, and go kite surfing. I just did it yesterday. But obviously, you know, most of my efforts and time are, are, are focused on music. And if I think of, of what turns me on, I mean, it's kind of boring in a way. I, I get more and more, the deeper I get into music, the more I get turned on by the, by the fundamentals. You know, right now I'm doing um, a hundred days of practice series. Mm -hmm. This is inspired by the, the great violinist Hilary Hahn, who's been doing this for years. She, right. she started it. And so the idea is that for a hundred days, you share um, some aspect of your practice uh, every day or close to every day. And so much of what I've been sharing has to do with fundamentals. I mean, yes, some days I'll write a new algorithm for natural machines and be really excited about that and, you know, do something that's like what I like to describe as the outer branches of the tree, right? But right. so much of what excites me the most is like really living at the roots of the tree, like the deepest roots of the tree and literally just working on uh, being able to play in decent time, you know, that never gets old to me, never gets old to me to work on rhythm uh, or working on fundamentals of tonal harmony, being able to, you know, cleanly improvise diatonic chordal movement by descending by fourths within like C sharp minor with, with preceding each chord with the plagal uh, secondary dominant of that chord. Just things like this that are, you know, that would, would have been completely straightforward to Bach. Um, that excites me to no end, actually. Uh, and I think maybe that's normal as you get older, you just get more and more excited by the, by the, the kind of fundamental truths of the craft that you're, uh, that you're a part right. of. And, and therein lies the discipline. And yeah. you know, I've, I've heard Renee Fleming speak often about this Herculean task we take on as singers. Mm -hmm. And it's it's profound. It's close to being um, an Olympic athlete, you know. Absolutely, it's back to the fundamentals, and indeed yeah. it is. We we have to stay there. But it is true. I think the older and more mature and jazzed we get about what we do, we we turn backwards. 
And yeah. um, with you, I'm really excited about that because you keep going forwards. And if you go backwards too, you know, we're going to have some hey ho, fantastic new piece coming. I'm telling you. <laughs> um, well, you know, I think I had the I have, I've had the experience in my life of going too far forwards. Yeah. You know, it's like you you spend too much time uh, building the, the outer leaves of the tree, and yeah. not enough not enough time on the roots, and the tree is going to fall over <laughs> if if you do that. And so. It's really caused me going through that experience in my life. It's, it's caused me to, to to just fall in love with the basis of the craft because I know that if I invest that time in the in the basics of the craft, then those outer leaves are just so fun. You know, I can write the craziest algorithm, I can come up with the craziest idea, and I can actually make it work because of those fundamental aspects of the craft. I think there's a new piece coming called Outer Branches. I think <laughs> that's a good title. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All right. So where to from here, Dan Tepfer? I mean, you know, I, I'm not a big planner. I'm actually a terrible planner. I, I tend to really follow my nose in the moment. Um, the I do have a, a, a duo record with, um, well, well, you know, as I mentioned, I just put out this record, uh, Inventions Reinventions, that came out mm -hmm. March 17th. Mm -hmm. uh, which I'm incredibly shocked has gone to number one on the billboard charts and in the classical category. I never would have expected that in my life. I mean, I never even thought about it. So that's, that's something I'm just totally delighted by. Um, and it, it seems to be really resonating with me with people. And that's even, even more meaningful because, uh, I think it really is my most emotionally sincere record I've ever made. So that means a lot to me. And I, I have a duo record with the great, um, composer, saxophonist Miguel Zanon, uh, who won MacArthur uh, a number of years ago, uh, coming out in October. And I, uh, I also, I have such a backlog of things I want to put out. Uh, I, I, I was commissioned a few years ago to record, uh, to, to, to arrange Stravinsky's Pulcinella for my piano oh, trio, nice. my jazz piano trio. And I've actually performed that at a few different festivals in Italy and in the US. And so I want to record that. Um, I also just keep pushing on the natural machine stuff. You know, I just keep writing new algorithms mm -hmm. through the pandemic. I wrote a bunch of new stuff. So I absolutely want to do a volume two of that. Uh, I also think uh, bringing, bringing artificial intelligence into the game mm -hmm. will probably be interesting because everything up till now has been really, really, really algorithms. I mean, literally using ideas that would be totally understandable to someone like Bach or even Okagem, you know, the, the, the Renaissance uh, composer who used mathematical procedures a lot in his work. Um, so, so I think, yeah, using AI in that would be interesting. Um, I, as I mentioned to you, I think before we started this interview, I'm, I'm I, I am going to do the Ravel piano concerto, uh, next summer. And, and actually on that same concert, I have a commission to write a song cycle for Cécile McLaurin Salvant, whom I'm sure you must know and love, who, who you know, who's one of the, to me, the, the greatest living jazz singer, uh, and just such a genius. Wow. artist uh, in her own way. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, and there's just, I've, I actually have a commission uh, to write a piece uh, in honor of my mom for <gasps> choir for the Skylark Ensemble and piano. And that'll be in early 2024 as well. I'm very excited about that. I've never written about choir, even though I've, I've never written for choir, even though, as I mentioned, I grew up uh, surrounded by choir in, my, in, my, in the womb. Um, and I have a, a commission to write a, a piece um, for the Eugene Symphony in, in 2025 uh, that's, gonna, that's going, to involve, going to involve algorithms and some real-time improvisation um, for the orchestra. So 
so there's a lot coming up. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about it all. I mean, I think it's just a great privilege to get to make music that I, that genuinely excites me because I, I did spend quite a few years in the trenches in, in New York as a jazz musician playing background music gigs in, in hotels and all of that. And so when I get to, to tour around the world uh, playing music that really comes from, from the heart for me, it's just, I, I'm, I'm very uh, conscious of what a privilege it is. And you're tuned in, Dan. You're really tuned <laughs> in. I love this. And I believe we should share with our listeners that you, you and I have something in common, and that is where our real roots are, which is in mm -hmm. Oregon. And mm -hmm. you, your, your family coming from the Willamette Valley, and mm -hmm. of course, me from Eastern Oregon, it's, it's kind of fun to hook up with some brethren. I love it. Well, not, not only that, but you know, my mom grew up in Eugene, Oregon, eventually became an opera singer. I mean, so very, very similar uh, life trajectory to yours. And my mom ended up in Paris, you ended up in London. Uh, it's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> it, is, it is amazing what can happen in this musical world. My God in yeah. heaven. I look forward to that piece you'll be writing for choir in memory of your mom. Mm. I think that is absolutely fantastic. And in the same way that you memorialize Leon Fleischer, in uh, 2020, I think in one of your blogs, I was mm -hmm. very moved with people actually giving you ideas to dedicate mm -hmm. to him in a piece of music which you played with only the left hand to mm -hmm. honor the fact that he had become paralyzed, of course. And mm -hmm. um, my gosh, that was really something I'd urge everyone listening right now to to go find on Dan Tepfer's DanTepfer.com and really look into this amazing artist i mean he's right in front of mm. you right now but you must look at some of the blogs and some of the the brilliance that he is writing mm, thank you so much pamela it's all there it's all there mm. i i have a very very fond connection with leon fleischer myself and mm. uh, he, he influenced my musical life a long time ago so that definitely stood out to me so bravo to you in which way i think that um when i heard his recording of both the brahms piano concerti I was so turned on by the visceral quality of what I felt was honest music making. Um, it just, it was yeah. so, it was so overwhelming to me. I'd heard several other um, interpretations, which just, I, di I didn't agree with. And then, then I discovered him. Honest music making. That is, that's a beautiful phrase. And I would say that that encapsulates a lot of what I learned from Lee, actually. And, and, okay. and you're right. You hear that from Leon Fleischer, too. This is something I speak about ad nauseum in my own voice lessons, Dan. I talk about the honest voice, um, mm. not not faking it, not mm -hmm. going away from who you are or what voice mm -hmm. you have, but really embracing it and singing into it with unbelievable honesty, meaning all the flaws that are there, uh, they, they mm -hmm. are part of you and your music making. And, and you know about this. And, uh, I do, and, 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 and you know, it's at the core of my music making too, but I have to say that I have great admiration for singers in this respect because there is no more vulnerable instrument than a singer, oh. than the voice, and it just reveals everything about you right away. And uh, I, I actually love to sing as an amateur. I'll, I'll sometimes sing encores on my concerts, um, but I, you know, I love it. I, I, I love singing, but, but I, I'm acutely aware of the amount of work and dedication that it would take for me to be the kind of singer who would do a whole concert of singing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you can certainly support those who are doing it, as with Miss Renee Fleming, I believe. Yes. And, and yes. all of your jazz icons. I mean, it's I'm playing with Renee um, in, in, uh, in two weeks in, in New York Fantastic. City. Yeah. Yeah. She, she's 
wonderful. And actually just on the topic of what you're just saying, mm -hmm. one thing I've heard her say several times um, in, in concert, concerts that we've given is that uh, one of her teachers told her and would, would, and would often say in, in master classes and things like that, she would tell her students, you are enough. Mm -hmm. which is maybe, maybe another way of getting at what you're uh, talking about in terms of, of, of the truth, to finding your true sound. It's not, that, not trying to pretend like you're something else. You are enough. That is a really vulnerable statement because so many of us are trying to, to sound like someone else. We're mm -hmm. trying to mimic something else. I'm sure, you know, of course, we've talked about this in our interview today of those who in jazz or feel if they're not impressing, they need to do more when actually it needs to be minimal. Yeah. You know, there there are some great singers who I think about that turned me on to the art a long time ago, and it's because they were so brazen with what they had that they mm -hmm. weren't afraid to to show a flaw. And mm -hmm. it's in that imperfection that we find great beauty. Yes, oh. but of course it, it is a tightrope because because in order to have that brazenness, unless you're like crazy, you actually have to be tremendously prepared and have great right. techniques. So, so it's, it really goes both ways. Uh, actually, um, Lee Konitz had a great quote about this. He said, if you're going to improvise, then you need to be prepared to be unprepared. And that requires a lot of preparation. <laughs> that is perfect. That Isn't that is, nice? That just sums up a musician. <laughs> that yeah. is so perfect. Well, Dan, this conversation has been incredible. I mean, of mm. course, we could speak to you all night. Um, I, I, I think they need to hook your brain up on it, really, and to explore it. Because <laughs> you are going so many places. And I think it's so fascinating the way you see art, the way you see music, the way you see the universe, and this, this great spiritual thing that you're making. So mm. that leads me to my last question. If, if you could sum yourself up with one word or one phrase, and I'm just throwing this at you, I haven't prepared you for this one. What, what you haven't prepared me for anything, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Talk about spontaneity. Yeah. So um, what would it be? What would, from your heart, from the depth of who you are, Dan? Hmm. Uh, the, the word, there's a word that came up uh, immediately to me when, when you said this, and that's the word yeah. curiosity. I love it. I love it. Because that's what keeps us alive and keeps us going forward and, mm -hmm. um, and exploring, which we mm -hmm. know you're going to be doing. So <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. That's really fantastic. Mm. Dan, all the best to you in this fantastic career of yours. Well, and same to you, Pamela. It's such a joy talking to you. Uh, thank you for this incredibly insightful conversation. It's really oh been a gosh. joy. And that is the amazing Dan Tepfer. I hope you have enjoyed this journey with us for the past two weeks. Please go to dantepfer.com for more information on his artistry. And I hope you will visit centerstagewithpamelacoon.com for our complete Zoom conversation and for more shows like this, including filmed interviews. And until we meet again, everyone, stay safe out there. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage.